0: Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Daniel Paris. I am the New Books and Finance host, a channel of the New Books Network. And I'm delighted today to have as my guest, David Colander, co-author, along with Craig Freeman, of Where Economics Went Wrong, Chicago's Abandonment of Classical Liberalism. Uh, The book came out from Princeton University Press uh, just this year, 2019. David, Welcome. Welcome. I am uh, in that awkward position of uh, having to say, and I, I suppose there are many, hopefully many times like this, where I, s- I said to myself after I finished your book, boy, I wish I'd written, i read this before I finished my own book. I, I just came out with a book a couple months ahead of you on um, the uh, implications of the Chicago School for Investment Theory. And uh, I, uh, w- however, I did the job, it would have been uh, far richer. Uh, had I, I read your book, which provides really uh, an intellectual history and background of what popularly passes uh, for the Chicago School. So thank you. It's a very, really, really interesting work. Um, I would like to start with a definitional issue, however, and that is, you know, uh, the, the the title is about classical liberalism and throughout the book uses classical liberalism. Um but the book is really about methodology and shifts in methodology and the philosophy behind them but before we get to that i just want to make sure the readers have a you know a good understanding of what classical liberalism meant at for, for uh, Mills and uh, Ricardo and other early economists before we get sort of the late 19th, early 20th century, uh, just because a lot of people think of it in, ter- in political terms rather than uh, the original terms. You know, liberals are the reverse of conservatives now compared to they were in the 19th century and so forth. But I, I think it'd be helpful if you could just provide an overview of some of the definitional issues before we get into your, your basic argument.
1: Well, first, let me say the definitional issues aren't resolved. You know, liberalism can mean so many things, classical can mean so many things, that really it's difficult to sort of get at. The issue we were trying to raise here is that what connected classical liberals, you know, sort of, which is sort of an idea that historian I'm a historian of thought, so that historians of thought use to differentiate Here's the evolution of economic thinking. We move from classical school to the neoclassical school to the modern school as is occurring now. So classical liberal in some sense refers to sort of the dominant, you know, feeling work up until really neoclassical period came. So it's a long period of time that had it and it evolved over time. But it was sort of the sense there's two aspects of classical liberalism. One was sort of his policy views, and that's what's usually sort of focused on. But what we argue is the most important thing, most important aspect of classical liberalism was its methodology, was the approach that it used to apply Mm -hmm. policy. And it tried to very much separate, keep out. Here, we're thinking of problems, we have to debate them. They don't have answers. They fully recognize that these issues were extraordinarily complicated, and you couldn't answer them scientifically, so they didn't try to answer them scientifically. What they did is to develop models and theories that sort of captured what would happen if people were totally rational, for example, recognizing that people aren't totally rational. So they then then sort of said, well, how would I adjust it to move to the real world? And they were always sort of on the edge of debating, here's what works in theory, here's what's going on, Here's what we're working on there. And here's where the practical aspects come in. And they were creating that link all the time between it. And that was sort of fundamental for them in thinking about it. And what sort of followed was sort of here the methodology they'll use to maintain that, be able to sort of carry on theory, but at the same time talk about policy
0: so but i i'll just uh, duly noted uh, but i again for i'm also a historian of former soviet union and and for us the classical liberalism least to be called out that it is a view of the world and a uh, even though not necessarily canonical but a view of the world that's focused really as a starting point on the individual as opposed to a caste or a religion or a state. Again, all of my, uh, intellectual history as a Russian historian, uh, classical liberalism plays almost no role so that, you know, uh, although it is, in your book, uh, uh, you know, quickly becomes an issue about methodology. Um, Just the very notion of trying to create an economic system, whether it's uh, an abstraction one or a rules-based one, is about figuring out how individuals operate from the perspective of individuals or macroeconomic uh, perspective, which is so different from prior or competitive theories, which are focused on the welfare of the state, on the interests of the state, on the welfare of a particular religion or or a, a broad-based particular group, a caste. So, I mean, we're all within the classical liberal tradition uh, where we're trying to figure out how individuals uh, aggregated or individually can do well. And um, that's different from the Russian, (laughs) my background is the Russian tradition.
1: When we're comparing it to sort of much broader range, you're you're absolutely right. And it should be emphasized that it is individualist and also consequentialist, which means here we worry about the consequences of actions, not the basic morality separate from the consequences of those actions.
0: So in your in your book, uh, the classical liberalism and the methodology of classical liberalism is really what you're you're tracking, providing an intellectual history of, and um, it, it is uh, a, a history uh, that is is from you know from uh, Mill, John Stuart Mill on where you identified for a couple centuries a, a certain methodology where abstractions were distinct from specific policy approaches and the early classical liberal economists were very comfortable in that range Do, can we can we discuss you know can you present a kind of a summary of how mill operated and how his peers before we got to the late 20th early 20th century and that separation between abstraction and uh, strict guideline or public policy uh, began to uh, crumble.
1: Yeah, well, if you look at Adam Smith, you know, sort of he, was in, in a, he was talking about the economy, but he didn't differentiate theory and sort of practical stuff. And so you jump between one and another, and it's really hard to follow what he's saying. After Smith, you had David Ricardo come in, who sort of developed the theory and started to emphasize theory quite heavily, and started to draw policy connections to that theory. That soon became known as the Ricardian vice, because out of theory, he was sort of drawing policy that didn't follow, because it didn't fit sort of the structure of what was going on. So he had a reaction to that. And it's really Mill's work that sort of captured sort of the high point of what we consider classical liberalism, because it was a reaction to Ricardo Sort of saying here, well, I like the theory, you know, so it really is clear what's going on. But as he jumps to policy, he's sort of connecting it in ways that sort of are letting, you know, sort of the wrong ideas come in. And you could make other arguments and these other arguments have to be addressed and considered. So John Stuart Mill was trying to integrate sort of various philosophies about the individual, about individual freedom. How can we fit that together? along with sort of the logical theories of Ricardo and in doing that he sort of created sort of this framework which really differentiated between economics as a science which it accepted and that was sort of at that time pure logical deduction because the empirical statistical work that they had was minimal and what you had to do in terms of science was just logical deduction. Um, And so that was really sort of one part of it. The other part was you can't sort of extend from here, people are rational and they'll do this, to talking about policy without adding all types of other additional stuff. And that's what Mill sort of added to it. He sort of said, theory will tell us half-truths. And sort of the other half-truths come from an understanding, a feeling, a broader sense of sort of the way reality goes. And all that has to be part of economics. So that, that sort of connection was really sort of what we consider the high point of classical liberalism. And
0: I, I, I had the pleasure of interviewing Morton Shapiro uh, for Sense and Sensibility uh, a couple months ago, and he is similarly emphasized that you know there there are two Adam Smiths. There's the Theory of Moral Sentiments and then the Wealth of Nations, and uh, too many people just focus on the one and ignore uh, the other. That you know that uh, there was a uh, I, I don't want to use the word soft, but a softer side, for lack of a better word, of Adam Smith, which is easily, easily overlooked because his he, he published the books at different times. There were separate books, and they were published at separate times, and you can kind of choose which Adam Smith you want. And the uh, the more rigid approach chose The Wealth of Nations and and uh, ignored The Theory of Moral Sentiments.
1: I interpret it a little bit differently. He wrote The Theory of Moral Sentiments before he wrote The Wealth of Nations. And sort of what the theory of moral sentiments, in my view, is is really his overall view of sort of human nature, and then sort of recognized here there are certain circumstances when we sort of can't control things to what people would like in his ethical values, and therefore sort of here we should rely upon sort of not trying to control it in order to get better outcomes, and that's where the consequentialist aspect of it comes here even though we're sort of allowing some of these aspects of individuals which aren't as sort of beneficent as we'd like to consider, they end up better for society than they otherwise would. And so I see the two as a connected whole um, for Smith. The problem is he blended it all together in a way that you couldn't separate it. And what Mill did is sort of go in and unblend it and said, here is sort of the logic of where they fit together and how you have to fit it together.
0: And so that, that logic, as it were, holds uh, uh, and is upheld. That is the separation between abstraction and practical application for, for a century or two. And then the 19th century comes along with its robust, what I would call, scientism. You don't spend a lot of time on it, but you know the, everything is being uh, quantified in the middle and late 19th century in the hard sciences, the notion of science becoming a, a template for the social sciences begins to gain speed and begins to move where rules are applied or rules in theory are also rules in practice. And in the late 19th century, starting with uh, Alfred Marshall, uh, and uh, it, it begins to make inroads into economics. And uh, even in my in my uh, corner of economics, uh, Marshall is an interesting transitional uh, factor uh, figure. Do you want to kind of discuss that late 19th, early 20th 20th century, in-between stage?
1: After Mill, you had a number of people coming, and Marshall is the best-known of those. He's often classified as, you know, sort of a neoclassical, sort of one of the first neoclassical along with Balrah and Jevons. But in many ways, he sort of maintained sort of a classical liberal view, sort of following Mill much more, sort of trying to integrate more and more of this analytic work that was putting in. And there was a big fight between Balra and Marshall. Now, Balra wanted to move totally towards mathematics, and he wanted policy to follow directly from the mathematical structure. And sort of Marshall did not. Marshall was very much a follower of Mill. I'm sort of going there, but giving more emphasis to sort of the analytic, because more analytic had been developed.
0: And for the reader's benefit, just this is the late 19th, early 20th century, 1890s and 1910s and so forth.
1: So Marshall wrote his principles, and it remained sort of the top book until about 1920. Um, and, you know, Walras was writing about the same time. And, you know, sort of economics sort of followed Marshall, at least English-speaking economics, generally followed Marshall up until the 30s. Um, you know, so it went on. Um, And then there was a fundamental change that occurred, and that's when sort of the mathematical structure, um, think of Paul Samuelson's, did his foundations, um, where suddenly sort of Marshall was pushed aside and was considered minor stuff, sort of getting it all mixed up because he said, you know, it's unclear what the results were, and Valra had very definite results. We can draw things directly from policy and science. And so very much you saw suddenly there was this movement towards Walrasian economics, setting everything in the general equilibrium system, solving a set of equations and arriving at the policy that you want. And that really occurred in the 1930s.
0: And I think it's important to note that the uh, the context for that is that the there was a lot of very definitive economics occurring on the other end of the spectrum in uh, you know the rise of socialism and and communism in the Soviet Union suggested there were mechanical answers that drawn directly from basic theory and uh, so it's not that surprising that there would be a ro- robust response what I found very interesting in your book and I have to admit that I didn't realize was that the Chicago school of um, uh, mechanical market-based answers was really not the direct response to say what was going on in my corner of the cabbage patch, the Soviet Union, but was a response to, uh, broadly put, uh, Keynesian uh, economics and and uh, the notions that the government should and can directly intervene. And if the government pushes a certain lever, something will happen in society very mechanically. Uh, and that it was that, uh, you know, sort of the Keynesian side that went first, not not the and the Chicago School as we know it now, emerges as a response to that, not as an, uh self, not as an original entity. Is is that a fair summation?
1: Yes, that's very much what we argue. That essentially, although it's a bit more complicated than just Keynes and macroeconomics, because there were developments occurring in microeconomics. So you had, you know, sort of Alfred Marshall writing, he sort of was getting older and everything else and Pigou was his chosen individual and he wrote the economics of welfare um, and welfare economics where what you did is take Valraisian economics, a full set of equations that describe the economy and sort of move from that to policy and sort of that's where you got here. There's market failures and the government has to enter in because of these market failures. Sort of became sort of the standard amount. Now, Abba Lerner, who actually had studied, you know, so with both Hayek and with Keynes, you know, sort of interpreted this and wrote it, the economics of control, which sort of was used for both socialist countries and for capitalist countries, saying socialist countries, if they understand all the math, can achieve the same ends as socialism. And so you had this market socialism aspect going on there. So that was all occurring at this time. And sort of Samuelson wrote his book and was seen as a famous economist really taking over. And Hicks wrote, you know, sort of value and capital. And you had all these books coming in that sort of said, here, we can now talk about scientific policy and its government has to enter in. Keynesian economics fit with that. Now, actually, if you read Keynes, Keynes was a student very much along the Marshallian lines and had a lot of classical liberalism within his sort of ideas. So he talked in in the general theory, he talked very little about actual policy. It was a theoretical book and policy was much more complicated than to be captured by, um, by the mathematical model. So Keynes didn't fall within that. But on the other hand, sort of the Keynesians who became Neo-Keynesians who integrated that with the mathematical structure of the macroeconomy said, here we now know what to do. And we have policy telling us, and science is telling us this.
0: And the science part, if I recall Samuelson correctly, that he took his cues, if I'm not mistaken, from Jevons, and that he was, as an undergraduate or graduate student, very keen on on uh, hydraulics and, and systems at work. You know, kind of a, a mecha- very mechanical approach to general equilibrium theory. You know, uh, and the economy as a hydraulic system. If I recall his history, the point. My point is that there, in addition to this uh, policy versus theory, there's also this. Trend Tremendous push throughout many disciplines during this time period, the late 19th and early 20th century, many social science disciplines. The, the term social science didn't even exist, but it's becoming one to make the social arts, sciences, and to understand the world that mechanically. And then once, uh, to your point, once you know the rules of that mechanical world, you just apply them directly. There is no difference between theory and practice. But in, uh, uh, you know, broadly speaking, um, you know, the economy as a uh, ca- economics and finance catching up to the advances made in sciences in the late 19th and early 20th century, the physical world. All of the economists and certainly all the finance people have, what, you know, uh, jokingly referred to as physics envy, that they want that's that they believe come to believe that that simple set of rules applies, complex or simple, but it's a set of rules, and that once you know them, then you can sort of manipulate them to to a particular end.
1: Yes, very much. That was along the lines of it. Although if you read Samuelson carefully, you know, so he's extremely sophisticated and sort of understood sort of some of the limitations. But a lot of his followers did not understand the limitations anywhere near as much as Samuelson did.
0: He's an outstanding writer as well uh, I, I he was he's on a different plane i uh, in my own book I use him quite a bit and he uh he was more subtle ex- to exactly to your point he is subtle when others others were not so the the uh the if not Keynes directly but that group and uh, uh learner in the uh, economics of control um uh, is a dominant paradigm and not surprisingly in light of the 30s and 40s and you know the, the role of state entities. And uh, there are still some classical liberals from a methodological perspective who are more cautious. Frank Knight is one of them at the University of Chicago. And uh, st- tell how this reaction to this m- the methodological, I won't call it weakness, but shift from directly to policy, from abstraction to policy, and in the hand, we won't call it of the left, but I'll call it maybe of the statist approach, led to a emergence of a counter school um, in an unlikely position, uh, unlikely location. That is, there were no, there's no particular evidence or reason it had to be at Chicago, but it did happen there.
1: Right. Well, I think you know it's important to recognize that here. This mathematical school was sort of taking over the leading edge of economics at most places. Frank Knight and sort of individuals who were sort of very much steeped in the classical liberal tradition were fighting against this. They were also fighting against some of the empirical work because that was the other thing that was happening. Statistics were getting much better, so economists were starting to sort of include, we can now statistically sort of develop the facts and everything else. And sort of as we develop these facts, we now have all that we need on the science side. So all these old fogies like Frank Knight, who are talking about sort of philosophical dimensions and everything else, they're, you know, sort of, they're just old hat and everything. And sort of everybody was moving in that direction. And sort of the Chicago School, and the Chicago School, as we argue, sort of what's called the Chicago School Existed before in a Chicago tradition. It wasn't exactly a school, but it was very much within this classical liberal sort of sense that here philosophy and economics have to be intertwined if we're talking about policy. Um, and sort of that was losing ground. Then, sort of for a variety of reasons that we go through in the book, Chicago sort of changed somewhat. They hired Stigler, and they hired Friedman, and they put together sort of a defense that accepted that science directly led to policy. So that was what was different. But they said it led to a different type policy than what Samuelson was saying it led to. So they set themselves up as an alternative scientific way of connecting the two. And the the real key, you know, to that scientific approach was Coase. Um, Ronald Coase in sort of his argument that here, you know, if you leave sort of individuals to their own, they'll solve problems on their own. And sort of his Coase theorem, which was developed actually by George Stigler, which said that essentially, if there's any externality, individuals will internalize that on their own. We don't have to rely on government. If you add that back into the model where they can solve all those problems, then sort of the, you always come up best by leaving everything to individuals alone, and that became their scientific paradigm, which they compared to sort of the state intervention scientific paradigm
0: and again, I, I have to uh, argue in favor a little bit of, of historical context that you know we're in the 40s '50s 60s the Cold War is raging um, there is not that it's a serious source of economic analysis but it is a serious source of, of state intervention oh, oh.
1: So all this was going on, I quite agree, that this is sort of saying here both sides sort of moved and said here it's science. So, so you had Friedman emphasizing that it's a positive science um, and sort of in his methodology book in discussion by positive science, he meant empirical work will resolve all these problems. And he felt it would resolve all the problems and showing that the market is better than, you know, sort of the state. Um, and, and so the classical liberal view on that was that, no, you can't solve these things analytically because they raise all kinds of questions that analytically you just can't include in any reasonable model that you have. So you may to have to both include values and include other sets of aspects that are not included in the models. So therefore, you have to separate these two. Um, and so that's where we argue economics went wrong, and that Chicago followed the other ones; they didn't cause the problem.
0: The the one uh, parallel attribute which affected my line of business, which is uh, finance, is that, and and maybe you can help position me as to exactly where the centers, uh, but. It, it, it's rational actor theory, which is, uh, uh, you know, neither state nor individual directly, but it, it is assumes uh, that, you know, the people make operate mechanically they're, uh, in a, in a, and in a mathematically determinable fashion. And uh, that is also coming to the fore. It's not a part of your book, but it's coming to the fore at that time. And that rigid, what I would refer to as a very, very rigid structure is uh, still one that we're dealing with now. But, you know, how, how does that, and again, it's not directly part of your book, so I don't want to put you on the spot, but, you know, it is emerging at the same time, and I associate it with uh, uh, Chicago School, though it may actually be better to associate it with Ronald Coast.
1: I No, I actually associate it with, you know, going back to Ricardo um, and sort of taking here the theory, here's the problem you have You can assume people are rational actors, um, in which case the mathematics of the model can be resolved and solved. Or you can assume here they're sometimes rational and sometimes irrational, where you capture more reality. But mathematically, you don't know how to deal with that because there's so many dimensions of irrationality to add back to it. You don't have a model anymore. And so those are the two alternatives. Now, sort of what rational acting did was say, let's carry this model as far as we possibly can by analyzing it. And sort of that's, you know, a reasonable thing to do. Um, And sort of that's what Samuelson started to do as he started to create this mathematical structure of it. Um, And sort of had here, if we follow it through, the government's going to have to enter in and correct the market failures um, that you had. Now, you know, once you had market failures, you know, sort of you could show that there was there. Government had to scientifically intervene into the economy. It was necessary that it do so. Um, but if you didn't believe that people were rational, it didn't matter what the model said, because here you knew people sort of would resolve problems in other ways other than through rationality. Sort of they try and sort of work for the good of society. There was some benefit they'd worry about. There's all kinds of ways you can make that argument. That was taken out of, so that was part of the classical liberal. We have to debate this in philosophical ways on which, you know, sort of you try and say, well, where does it fit in there? How do you apply the model? That was what was lost. And so, you know, the, the movement was here, we've got to apply this, class, this rational model. But it was really started with mathematics and Samuelson. Coase, what he said was actually to tear that down. So what Coase did, you know, was really say, I want to show if we carry out rationality to the limit, what it means is there's no reason for government to ever ever intervene because people will just resolve everything on their own. But Coase was also very clear to say that has no policy relevance whatsoever because you can't talk about policy. So the whole model both sides are using to talk about policy is foolish, and so that was really Coase, and that's why we argue Coase and the Virginia School were sort of the alternative that wasn't followed.
0: Yeah. Do you want to briefly highlight the fact that it uh, uh, that there was, uh, as you say, for a couple of years, I think in the late 1950s, 58 to 60, I believe, uh, the potential for an alternative uh, and perhaps a more subtle view.
1: Well, Coase had been at Virginia. Um, Buchanan was at Virginia. Warren Nutter was at Virginia. There was a whole group of people at Virginia who sort of were worrying, you know, within this broader framework, sort of attacking sort of the mathematical structure of it. Um, Coase went off to Chicago um, and sort of influenced Stigler to sort of say, here we can do it, but Stigler's sort of version of the Coase theorem was not sort of Coase at all. And so what we discussed in that chapter is here, Buchanan, Coase, Tullock, they could have created an alternative, but our view was because they had such definitive views about policy, it wasn't seen as a neutral presentation. It was seen as trying to support the market as opposed to saying we're talking about the methodology. And so a lot of the people who push classical liberalism, We're seen as just trying to sort of reinstate the market and say it's good independently, as opposed to saying what we're worried about is getting the methodology right. Here's what we can say from theory, and here's what we can't say from theory. And the debate should be at a different level than it's currently at which is here all about the science, which is missing much of the important elements of what, what, what's going on.
0: And I, I have to say, again, operating in finance now, 50, 60, 70 years later, the absence of that subtlety is felt every single day. I literally am told and expected to operate according to these very precise mathematical models that involve no human judgment, no Realization of decision making under conditions of uncertainty and the subjective inputs as to how that operates. Um, you know, my, um, you know, the, what is dominant in my world currently is, is algorithms drawn from assumptions about uh, macroeconomic theory. So I'm, uh, I, I'm in desperate need of some classical liberal uh, methodology. But I, uh, you, you and I are not going to create that in the market anytime soon, unfortunately. <laughs>
1: movement going on, So sort of, I'm involved in the complexity science approach, you know, sort of that sees basic uncertainty and is making those sets of arguments that are going on. So there is some stuff, you know, occurring, and what it says is all the algorithms and all the sort of finance stuff that people are talking about are heuristics. They're possibly useful heuristics at times, but they can always sort of be broken down and sort of looked at, and you always have to have judgment.
0: My 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 colleagues, peers, competitors have no idea what a heuristic is. They just call them rules, not tools, and they don't they don't draw the distinction. Let's let's get though a little bit to your um you know the 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 full throated emergence of director Stigler and Friedman. Uh, they they. Uh, shift from a sensibility to a school, become very dominant. Uh, let, let's hit the high points and then move on to, you point out some interesting, very uh, interesting dissenting voices. But let's, let's describe, let's give them their credit for now and describe how they, you know, have managed to create a school.
1: Oh, it was amazing sort of how they could, could develop an alternative argument sort of based on you know, here was a model and everything else. And sort of, you know, sort of, it was, but it was a marketing victory as opposed to what I call an analytic victory. You know, sort of that here, sort of, they combined sort of a a support of the market along with a theory sort of that became, you know, sort of really sort of a push within politics and everything else. Whereas if you had classical liberals, they'd argue, you know, sort of if you're going to talk about policy, you have to move outside your role as an economist um, and sort of not try and pretend that you're doing it. And sort of a lot of times Friedman and Stigler would say that. For example, Stigler, when he won the Nobel Prize, was asked to say something right about uh, something good, think about Ronald Reagan's policy, and he had nothing to say, um, sort of they quickly moved him off stage. Um, at other times, he was very much involved in sort of trying to support the market and everything else. So, you know, sort of one of the things we really emphasize is if you're going to sort of use and be a scientist, you know, so you want to be very clear to make sure here you're saying how that science can be put in terms, can be used in terms of understanding the reality today. And then finance is a good example, you know, sort of here, you know, sort of all the finance people who were sort of looking what was occurring in the early 2000s knew sort of that here, the sense that, you know, everything was resolved and everything wouldn't work and that the models were based on all kinds of very rigid assumptions, which if they didn't hold could lead to breakdown and everything else. But they never went out and told people that. And we've argued in a number of papers that I've done that they should have
0: done that. And so they, they nevertheless, you know, generation after generation, whether they are theoreticians uh, working on policy issues or creating uh, rigid, very, very rigid rules, uh, again, affecting my universe uh, in modern portfolio theory um, and efficient markets, all of which is uh, you know kind of <laughs> uh, an extreme application of uh, these abstractions applied to human affairs, which I object to, but they succeeded but you you have pointed out you know maybe this pendulum is swinging. Um, if not back a little bit, but at least there are uh, enough dissenting voices there and they're they're worth calling out. Uh, uh, Not necessarily reflecting a, these people, as you point out, don't all agree with each other on economics, but they are increasingly cautious about conflating uh, theory and policy abstractions and realities. And and it's a nice list of, of varied economists.
1: Yeah, what we tried to do is sort of take a selection of economists who we felt were sort of recognizing sort of the limitations and including it in their discussions at times. So one was Ed Leamer, who sort of has sort of consistently attacked econometrics. He's a wonderful econometrician, but at the same time saying, let's be honest about what we can actually draw from this and what we can say from that. And sort of much more, sort of trying to hold economists, you know, to, to the line. So there was an econometrician, and then, and then we talk about Ariel Rubinstein, who's a, you know, wrote the basic text in game theory, who says it's all a theory, it's all a fable, you know, and fables can be very useful for things, but you have to recognize that it's fables. And anybody who goes out and says, here I as an economist can tell you you're supposed to do this and that, is full of, well of a lot of
0: stuff. if uh, if anyone tried to interview with me or with my firm uh or at the university of chicago or uh and said you know these things that we learn from the mba or cfa program are fables and not actual practical tools they would unfortunately not you know the interview would be very brief uh and that's god bless that he's saying that because that's a tough that's uh counter to what has become institutionalized
1: but they, but they could be useful tools. In other words, fables can be very useful at times, as long as they're kept with what they are. They're not reality. They're not the truth. They're ways of which you can sort of look at something that's very complicated, and it'll make you look at it in a certain way. To really sort of be good, you have to be able to sort of look at it in lots of different ways and then use judgment to try and pull that all together. That's the part that's missing. In a lot of finance today, and a lot of economics,
0: and that was that was uh, again Morton Shapiro's argument in Sense and Sensibility that we've lost the human judgment touch in favor of all of these uh, these rules. Uh, so I'm, uh, you know, there seems to be a uh, not a consensus, but at least there are a number of dissenting voices, yours among them. So I'm very much happy to to uh, contribute by for, uh, giving you guys a bit of a, a platform to to discuss it.
1: Well, thank you very much. You know, sort of it's, um, there. And, and again, we sort of, end, you know, sort of that, end the book with a discussion that it's all heuristics. You know, sort of that if economics sort of went on and say, what we do is develop useful heuristics for individuals, um, you know, and then we'd emphasize here's where the heuristics seem to have worked pretty well. Here's where they don't work well. It'd be a much more useful set of tools that we're handing out to people than what we currently do. And, you
0: know, it's whether it's Cass Sunstein or some of the other kind of more applied behavioral finance heuristics and and, uh, uh, Schiller on my end and uh, 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 Richard Thaler uh, that are, you know, suggesting behavior Really matters, and that uh, one size doesn't fit all, and there can be a range of outcomes. Again, it just doesn't fit in the in the m- macro market model. Let's, are there any of the other uh, classical liberal methodologists that you want to uh, mention uh, uh, as well as we as we wrap up?
1: Okay. Just a couple. I think Danny Roderick, you know, sort of has a nice discussion of sort of international trade and has for the last 20 years said all economists have pushed, you know, we're all in favor of trade as if economics led to that. It's much more complicated than that. And there's a whole set of issues and he sort of emphasized it. So he was another of the individuals we sort of called out as being it. So one of the things we were thinking of this sort of list of sort of 20 or 25 economists from a wide range of views. Notice the connection has nothing to do with what their views on policy are, whether they're pro-market or anti-market or anything else.
0: I, li- I, I caught that. I like that. That is, you were not promoting a particular agenda, but you were hei- uh, promoting really a methodological preference, not, not an outcome of preference.
1: Yeah, an approach to something, an attitude that you take that, look, economics is wonderful. It's very, very useful. But we've got to be honest about, you know, sort of where it is and isn't useful. And starting from the beginning textbooks, we're not honest about it. Um, so that would be sort of the one clarion call that we would have there. Let's be a bit more honest than what we are about what economics can and can't say about policy.
0: Well, let's hope that that makes its way into the curriculum, undergraduate, graduate, and uh, actual policymakers themselves, and we get a little bit more human judgment and a few few less rigid rules. The book is uh, Where Economics Went Wrong. Uh, Chicago's Abandonment of Classical Liberalism by David Colander and Craig Freedom. Uh, Friedman. David, uh, thank you so much for joining. We usually end up by asking what your, your next uh, project is, or current project. If you have something that uh, is uh, bursting out, f- feel free to share.
1: Um, no, I'm sort of trying to figure out where I want to go next. So
0: Well, in the meantime, it is a very interesting, I think an important read. Uh, It is available uh, through standard uh, book distribution platform. So, David, uh, thank you for joining. Please don't hang up yet because your file has to compound. uh, uh, But uh, thank you very much.
1: Okay, thank you.